0: This is Greta Heinemann, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast.
1: My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 110, for August 11th, 2020. Well, today I have the pleasure of bringing you an interview with Greta Heinemann, who wrote for NCIS New Orleans and also for NBC's Good Girls, and she's got a couple of other projects in development, including one at HBO Max and a feature film. Um, you can love the interview. She's got lots of great stories about how she came literally from the Bavaria-Austria border, not knowing English. Uh, as a matter of fact, she didn't even start learning English until she was 14. All her, um, everything she had to do to even come to the States. And then what led to her being on, um, those series, which included the, the, not only the CBS, uh, writers mentoring program, but also the Humanitas program. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it for as little as 25 cents per episode. You can find out how you can become a patron of the podcast or a sponsor of the podcast at tvwriterpodcast.com slash support. Make sure to subscribe on all of the places you can find this podcast, Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, the tvwriterpodcast.com site, or also at scriptmag.com, and now also on Pandora. And if you're on Instagram, please follow at TV Writer Podcast. Please do follow me on Twitter, at Grey Jones is my handle. You're going to love the interview. Let's roll. Well, this is Grey, and I'm here with Greta Heinemann, who wrote for NCIS uh, New Orleans and as well for NBC's Good Girls. She was a supervising producer on that before COVID hit. Oh, no. But how are you doing, Greta?
0: I'm good. I'm good, considering that we're all stuck in our homes, and you're probably going to hear my dog bark and all kinds of things. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh-huh. yeah well at least with with writers you can write from home um feels, very like, true. feels like a writer strike in some ways
0: yeah i mean it's well it's not because we're all working
1: yeah that's true <laughs> that's true
0: yeah.
1: cool well well i i definitely i loved your bio um when it talked about your your beginnings um the bavarian austrian border it couldn't be farther from hollywood um tell me about how you started then and then w- how you made your way to Hollywood. And I, I actually have a special interest. I spent some time in, in Germany. My dad was in a clinic and uh, do you know where Bad Halbrunn is? Um, Near yeah, Bad Tuths. Yeah. yeah um, by,
0: my, my, by my grandparents, actually.
1: Not far. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. I, <laughs> so I know the area somewhat. I was there for a few mm-hmm. weeks. Um, but t- tell me about it. Tell me about how you grew up, how you learned English and, and how you made yeah. that, that journey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up, uh, as you said, on the Bavarian-Austrian border uh, in a tiny, tiny village called Burghausen, which cl- the claim to fame is that it has the longest castle in uh, Europe, which I think kind of makes it probably the world because, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, I-, I grew up there. And um, if you want to picture it, they shot The Sound of Music just down the street from there. So that's how wow. it looks. Um, and I have my, my family story is a little bit funky in that um, through just a chain of odd circumstances I ended up finding myself living alone in a 12 bedroom home at the age of 11.
1: At the age of 11.
0: Um, yes, wow. and so I was kind of doing the Pippi Longstocking thing where um. I'm like kind of taking care of myself and sort of like figuring out how to you know make money here and there to put food on the table. And as you can imagine, what happens when teenagers do that, you get in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of that, a lot of trouble. Um, But then when I would come home at three in the morning, like, you know, being out partying or whatever not, I would always put the TV on. And they they had this really odd like Austrian TV station that was rerunning all kinds of American action movies, like mm-hmm. sort of the B movies, I would guess. Like now yeah. in retrospect, like I grew up on a very healthy Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis diet. And, you know, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> And then, like during the day, I would watch, you know, I mean, sort of the very lethal concoction of Baywatch and Melrose Place and mm-hmm. and any wish fulfillment American TV that you can imagine. And um, I guess, I guess, I always was interested in telling stories. Um, but at some point, I basically realized I was like, you know, if I if I want to make something out of my life, which at that point it was, things weren't looking too rosy I guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was probably like the least likely to succeed at anything um I I decided that that I would become something in the entertainment industry I wasn't at the time I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a writer Mm -hmm. uh it's funny because like you know so many writers always go like oh I love reading and I love getting lost in books and that has never been me like I Mm -hmm. have always gotten lost in movies and so like some people were like you should be a producer because I am I guess german in that i'm organized and Mm. do things in a systematic way um and then i was like oh but maybe i want to be a director and and i remember like when i watched the terminator like gail Ann Hurd was credited as as a producer on it um and i was like huh that's a woman and Mm. so i guess if you go to hollywood women can blow shit up and all that so i was like you know what (laughs) um i'm I'm just gonna (laughs) figure out how to get over there, and I must have been around 14 years old when when I decided that, and I, I didn't speak English, um, and so I decided that I would learn the language, and the best way to do that is by listening, I guess, mm-hmm. and so I, I started watching Baywatch in English, and you know, sort of copied the language. Uh-huh. And then, like, I remember the first screenplay I actually ever read was Jaws um, because it's just one of my, you know, big movies, like influential mm-hmm. movies, you know. And so that was the first screenplay I ever read in English. Wow. And then, yeah, and then, you know, from there, you know, I, I got a little bit older and the moment I had enough money, um, I I came over here.
1: So, so tell me about immigration. Uh, I mean, to say that you just had enough money and came. I know from being an immigrant myself, it was years, it was hundreds of pages of applications. It was uh, a big hassle. Uh, What what was it like for you?
0: Well, so I, and I guess I, depending on who you ask, I think I was 22 when it happened, but Mm -hmm. I might've been 21. And so like you're too young to wrap your head around that whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I, a flight and I packed my bags and I found this really weird looking website called Craigslist. Okay. <laughs> and I found myself a shared apartment on it. Um, and I sent 200 applications for companies like internships. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, you got to find an internship so that somebody can sponsor you or whatever or not. And out of the 200 um, applications that I sent in, Two, wait, no, one, one was answered. Wow. And it was, um, it was the knitting channel. (laughs) And, and they were like, yeah, maybe we would do that. And then Uh I sent them, I was like, oh, so here's all the information about visas. And they were like, goodbye. Oh my. And yeah. So then I was like, I don't think I can line up a job Mm -hmm. uh, from over there. And it makes, I mean, if you think about it, there are so many people who who will do work for free in this town just to get a leg up. Why mm. would you tell somebody who's sitting in Germany that they're welcome to join you? Like, it makes <laughs> no sense. Yeah. So then I got a little creative in that I was like, oh, I need to find people who are like-minded or who have a special interest in supporting someone like me. And I found a um, LGBTQ and all the other additional identifiers that I'm spacing out on right now, but production company that mm. was run by lesbians. And they were like, ooh, free lesbian labor. Love it. <laughs> and so they ultimately said to me, if you can get a plane ticket, if you can get a place to stay, if you can swing all your bills, you are welcome to work for us for free.
1: Wow. Um, You're welcome to work for free. Okay.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: But And would they help you with the sponsoring and, and that kind of thing?
0: No. So that was literally I came only for a visit, essentially. Okay. I came I came for ninety days, which is all you can do legally on a tourist visa. And because on a tourist visa you can't legally work, I basically just was like hanging out in their basement and was doing what I could. Like mm-hmm. lots of walking dog and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, that was my first trip coming here. Mm-hmm and i was very lucky in that you know i i instantly found a group of friends and on my third day in this country i actually met the woman who's now my wife oh wow so i was like hmm this is working all right um so then i had to leave because you know immigration so i had to leave the country and i basically did that back and forth for 2 years oh, wow. i I would literally come here and see how I can you know, make connections, meet people, uh, maybe find something that could lead to a visa, uh, then would go back to Germany, work my ass off, make more money, uh, and come back. And eventually it was a very dear friend um, who actually had a wife from Australia at the time gay marriage wasn't legal. So they they had been through all of this to be together, and she's a, she's a friend of ours, and she was running a production company at the time. And I had a very specific skill set in that I had sort of educated myself in producing and storytelling, but also sort of digital game design aspects of it all. Mm-hmm. And that at the time, this was like 2009, it was a very like fresh industry, essentially. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and so ultimately, uh, they managed to sponsor me on a special skilled work visa. Oh,
1: interesting. And,
0: okay. Yeah. So that's how they brought me over. And, you know, the special skilled work visa, it was wonderful. Um, mm. It allowed me to be here. It allowed me to, to you know, continue to, to hone my craft. The one thing I, it did not allow me was to work for anybody but that specific company. Mm. and so I couldn't do the PA jobs. I couldn't do the coffee runs. I couldn't volunteer on set. I had to do the actual job that I was hired to do, which I did, oh, I'm, I don't remember exactly. It must have been like four, five years long. Like it was a long time because you mm. get those visas usually last for three years and then you need to be renewed, which it was, um, and during that time – I would sign up to do UCLA extension classes and just to keep myself in the writer's brain or in the creative brain. And I took all my money and made a horrible feature film that nobody should ever see. And like I did that stuff to compensate for not being able to work in the business for others. And then ultimately, luckily, I got a green card and once I had the green card, things sort of stumbled into the writing pretty quickly.
1: Hmm. yeah, people people don't understand when you when you say "I came from Germany or "I came from okay. Canada it's it's not easy
0: <laughs> no, it's um, and it's only getting harder right now. Hmm. um so it's it's very, very sad, and it's you know it's really. It's quite an uphill battle and it can be incredibly intimidating to international talent. And then on top of it, you gotta to add to it that, you know, English isn't your native language. Oh. <laughs> and so so in my case, being like, Oh, I wanna be a writer and this is not even the language I grew up speaking, like it, there's just a lot of, you know, huge mm. uphill battles that can be very intimidating, no doubt.
1: Mm, especially starting at fourteen. I I started foreign languages early, early in Canada, it's, it's common uh-huh. to be bilingual right from the beginning. Um, but I, I know there were certain people that started at seventh grade, certain people that uh-huh. started at 10th grade and it was much, much harder for people who started later.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> if I may brag, I learned uh-huh. nine years of Latin,
1: <laughs>
0: which oh, uh-huh. nothing to you. Uh-huh. Um, but the one thing it does do is it 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 explains to you how languages work. So mm-hmm. you haven't easier time getting into it maybe?
1: Yeah. I well, and there, I mean there's a couple of things with that. One is the, it's sort of the base of the romance languages and also um there's something that happens when you know a second language that it makes it much easier to learn the third and fourth, et cetera. Um, yeah, the yeah, they, the biggest jump is the first to the second.
0: Right. Although I could not, I mean I could never translate anything in Latin. I was yeah. pretty a pretty bad student.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my German.
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> German is like a horrible language to learn. So it's, I'm glad it's I, hard. Have, it's hard. I didn't have to learn that one. <laughs>
1: yeah. So so you've got your green card. What then?
0: mm mm-hmm. um, I got my green card, and that was like. And by the way, like the the sad thing. That I wish could change somehow. Mm. Maybe I should talk to people about that. Is that all the writing programs um, need? Like, you, they require you to be a U.S. a legal U.S. resident, and sometimes I think even a citizen. So I could never apply to them.
1: Hmm. So even, um, even on a temporary, and, like, so you mm-hmm. had your temporary visa, but you couldn't couldn't yeah. uh, apply to them because
0: those. like. Right, because I think what happens is, for example, if you got into the Disney fellowship, which would translate into a job, mm, then right. you wouldn't be legally allowed to do the actual work, and you would—I would have never been legally allowed to work for a show. So there would have been no use right. <laughs> in the program. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so the moment the moment I could, um, like it was like all hell broke loose, mm. and I my first step was applying to um to the f- fellowships. Yeah. At the time I was um producing a sort of an interactive show for Google. So I was that was like my day job and then mm-hmm. I I would do the fellowships. And then ironically after um the Google thing wrapped, I actually and I was at this time I mean how old was I probably like 27 or 28 which Theory, like, sounds super silly to say, but mm. I was probably too old to be an intern or a PA. <laughs> um, oh, I, get, oh, I totally but, get
1: that. Yeah.
0: It, right? It's like, it's mm. crazy. But I, I, and so what I did is like every day when I would go to work, I would drive over the Barham Bridge mm. to this special skilled job that was p- sponsoring me. And I would drive over the Barham Bridge and I saw the Valhalla building, which is Galen Hurd's production company. Mm. And every day I would drive by there and I was like, there she is. And I can't get anywhere near her. Um, and kind of creepy. no yeah.
2: offense.
0: Um, And then what I did, the moment I could, uh, some friend told me that they were looking for interns. And so even though I was too old, I put my hat in, like my name in the hat. And um, I they brought me on as an intern to, you know, do coverage for them. Um, so that was actually, that was theoretically my first like business job mm. and that was running parallel as the fellowships
1: and co- doing coverage is one of the best educations in, in screenplays.
0: Yes. And it also, it, it is a, is a huge education. And I think it also gives you a lot of respect for, for just how much is out there and how you would others want to read your work and be respectful about it and how to feedback it. Hmm. I think that's, that, that was a very cool... It was a very short internship because I got into one of the fellowships and then had to be an asshole and leave the job early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but learned a lot.
1: And so that was CBS Diversity?
0: So the, the first... Pro, the, at the time, the first fellowship that I would gotten into was the Humanitas New Voices program, mm. which is sort of a little bit different than the main ones.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then I got into the CBS one in the same year. Yeah.
1: Oh, in the same year! Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've had people on on here recently who took years uh, before they finally were accepted.
0: Yeah, and I yeah. I, I I was incredibly lucky. Mm. Let's just say that. Well, think, tell me about
1: those. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I, like, I think the norm is that you will apply year after year
1: after year mm. after year.
0: But then at the same time, if I would have legally been able to do it, maybe mm. I would have applied when I was like 22 and wrote really horrible scripts.
2: Uh-huh. And then
0: they would have turned me down, down, down. And instead, because I couldn't, I spent these five, six years homing my craft. So, mm. So maybe that's why.
1: Yeah. Well, tell me about these two programs i haven't heard much about the humanitas uh, program uh, what was that one like and then what what was the uh, cbs program like for you
0: yes um so the humanitas program and it has changed a little bit since so mm. i'm not i don't know how how much use there is in 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 going into great depth but what was really awesome about the program is um it is obviously it's from the human uh, from the humanitas foundation mm. and what they do is they pair, I think it was four, um, like grantees or fellows Mm -hmm. with show, showrunner mentors. Oh, wow. And yes. And showrunner mentors who had a deal at a specific studio. My mentor was Pam V. who at the time was uh, running CSI cyber Mm -hmm. and had a deal at, at CBS. And then, um, that showrunner essentially would supervise you writing a script Oh, wow. You um, show to the studio. Yeah. And what is even better is you got a really nice check. And really? I, oh my God, I literally had 200 like that was it. I had $200 left
2: uh-huh.
0: for, for good. That was it. There was, 200, there was $200 in my bank account and a $900 1988 BMW that wasn't running. That's all I had. <laughs> And then I got the Humanitas check, which at the time was $20,000. Oh, my goodness. And that literally saved my ass. So, wow. yeah. So that that was program, it's changed a little bit since, but it's still yeah. up and running, and it's a wonderful program to be a part of. Wow. Um, and this, the CDS program, I mean, I'm, I, and I'm sure your listeners or viewers, whichever one it is, um, mm-hmm. you know, will know about them, but there's basically the big fellowships, which are, oh God, NBC, Writers on the Verge, CBS, uh, Writers Mentoring Program, Warner Brothers Mentoring Program, mm-hmm. ABC Diversity Program, I think they call it. Then there's a Fox Diversity Initiative now. Mm-hmm. And then HBO recently has done some new stuff. Sundance has done some stuff. I feel like Netflix is doing something now maybe. Mm-hmm. So, and those fellowships obviously are like identifying um young talent and, and nurturing them. And, um, ironically, I was telling you before we started recording, I was telling you that I actually discovered your then podcast when I was prepping because you had Carol Kirshner on who runs the CBS program. And I was listening to the podcast trying to figure out like, what do I need to do to get, to make Carol like me? (laughs) 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 Um, and so yeah so the do you want me to talk a little bit about the application process or the ah, sure the yeah like script?
1: like what were your samples um, what do you feel yeah. got you in the door
0: Yeah I mean so at when the year that I applied it was a spec script of an existing show which I feel like they're doing very little off these days mm. which I'm not sure I agree with it's actually a really yeah. good exercise
1: to spec Yeah uh, CBS still still needs specs Good uh, as mm-hmm.
0: they, as they should yeah. You're making me proud. Um, no, but I did a I did a Sons of Anarchy
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, spec, and then I had written an original pilot, which tonally was sort of in the same world. And I think that's generally a really good thing to keep in mind: is mm-hmm. if you're if you're delivering two pieces of work, they should give you a whole picture of who you are as a writer. Mm. So my when I first started out, my whole thing was like dark, gritty, seedy underbelly crime drama. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so those were two that fit and it was more like cable and serialized. That was sort of my direction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to keep in mind is if you send them a, you know, super dark, fucked up handmaid's tale and then a spec. And then you send them Zoe's Ultimate Playlist musical, <laughs> then they will where to put you. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's an important thing. Um, then you need to write like a, a letter of intent or like some sort of statement essay. And that was a real challenge for me because, again, I didn't grow up here mm-hmm. and... The whole college application process, with the essays and all of that, is such—it's such an American thing. Mm-hmm. Like where I come from, and, and you might be able to relate. Like where I come from, it's like I've done this, this, and this, and this, and this <laughs> is why I qualified for the job. Yeah, it's not like when I grew up, my father always did this, and I did <laughs> that, this is my identity.
1: Well, ironically, I—I I know Carol, and uh, what you describe is more what she's interested in. <laughs>
0: A hundred percent. Well, and also like if you look at it like from from a just objective point of view Mm. in retrospect, I now get it because if you're going into a writer's program, you the the people who are running the writer's program and the executives who you'll meet, Mm. they need to remember you and they need to understand who you are. And you need to be able to tell them who you are as a writer while at the same time giving them a really good idea of who you are as a person. And you have to do that in two minutes or less
2: Hmm. because that's
0: oftentimes the time you will get. And it's almost like a personal log line. And and I actually I literally was just on a call um, with a Disney exec yesterday and I sort of told her my story and she literally said she's like, Oh, yeah, I I have never heard that one. And I was like <laughs> I was like, you know, people kind of were like, "Wait, she's like the German girl who learned English watching Baywatch."
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, when you when you're able to harness what you are, how you came to this town, why you're writing, and you do that well in your essay, it gives those fellowships a much better idea as to how you stand out, and that's mm. really really important. And we're writers, so you need yeah. to be a good storyteller, even if you're talking about yourself. Yeah. Um. So that essay is obviously a huge.
1: Yeah. Piece. So so just like you want to write a high concept script, you should have a high concept bio. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And you know, actually, there is um, there is a Carol Krishner actually wrote a book uh, called mm. I think it's Hollywood Game Plan. Yeah. I have some notes of the title. I'll have to get back to her on that one day. Um, but in that, she actually describes on how you can craft a personal log line and, and all those things. And she might have mm-hmm. actually talked about it on your podcast, and I heard it, and so I was like, sure enough. I'm going to get me the book, <laughs> and I'm going to get the highlighter, and I'm going to yeah. see how they want it done, and I'm going to turn it in that way. So I think yeah. a lot of research really helped me.
1: Yeah, uh, very, very most- cool. Yeah. And so in, in the program, I I know, I know do know a lot about the, the CBS one Um, but they workshop the the show running meetings, they, they Mm -hmm. pair you up. Um, I mean, you, you have showrunners come in and present to the class, but talk about that experience for you because that you had already had an experience with one showrunner. Um, how was this helpful in developing further?
0: Oh my God. It was amazing. It was, it was like, first of all, um, the, the way the year that I was in it, the way they did it is they sort of started the program off in October. Mm-hmm. And you would develop a script with exe- with executives weighing in and giving you notes. So that was a an amazing process, just in terms of professional growth, mm-hmm. because you can you know take classes or you can work with peers. But at the end of the day, executives are the reader gatekeepers, and they'll read mm-hmm. you. And so getting their notes just gives you a much bigger, better understanding of how their brains work. Um, So that's the first thing. And then you, you write that script under their guidance. And Mm -hmm. then starting January, I think, is when they have weekly meetings, right? And that's when every night, every night, some showrunner, or like, they sometimes do mid level writers coming in, and they kind of tell you how to swing the first couple years on the job. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they have Nights where peers share really tough experiences, which is super helpful. And then you do mock meetings with showrunners, um, which ultimately I find, like I, I feel like once you're like interviewing with immigration agents about a special uh, skilled visa, a showrunner is not that scary anymore <laughs>
2: to uh, me. <laughs> um,
0: but not all writers are that confident giving meetings. Mm. So having sort of mock meetings before you go on the one that really counts sort of takes the edge up a little bit mm. and helps you sort of figure out how to present yourself and, and how to interact with them. And also, like, it creates relationships. Um, mm. There's been I think there's been a couple of showrunners who were visiting during the CBS program that I've since crossed paths with again. Mm-hmm. And then like, I know like some of my friends are, are developing with the showrunners who are visiting. Um, so it is a great way of, of getting exposed to professional writers. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, you're getting exposed to agents and managers, um, which is all sort of kind of the, it, it's the boot camp that gets you ready to go and try and land a job.
1: Mm. Like. Spe- speaking about agents and managers, did you have representation at that point?
0: I did. I mm-hmm. I had at the time. Let me think. Um, I went through a lot of managers. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and well, <laughs> tell like, yeah, tell, I, tell me about that. Uh, what was what was the first one? Why did you change?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, and it's and it's all in in good faith, I believe. Um, the first one, first manager i found i was doing a show with some friends like it and i can that's only one thing if i can say it's like nobody like if you're waiting for permission to do it that Mm. might never come so (laughs) i had written a show and i had met a friend an actor who i had done that horrible feature film with who ended Mm. up becoming a great friend and he was uh involved with some more recognizable actors so we did a pilot uh Mm. we just like Indy made a pilot, and through that experience, I got my first manager, mm-hmm. and she was great. She was wonderful. Um, she did, however, uh, not have the, I say, clout to get through to the town. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I won the UCLA writing ex- uh, uh, UCLA Extension Program's writing competition. I think that's mm-hmm. what it's called. Um, and I I won that one and my name went out like email blast to the town with my script. And I got a call from a very renowned manager who was setting up spec pilots left and right. Mm. And so I I had a heart to heart with my first manager. And I said, I, I need to take this opportunity. I said, I, I, I got to do that. Yeah. Um. And he took my my spec pilot out, the, the next manager. It didn't set up. Um, and then very quickly, I realized that we were just not aligned in terms of what we wanted mm. moving forward. Because some managers are really producers. Yeah. And they find pilots and they try to set them up. And if they don't set up, then they don't give a fuck about you anymore.
2: Mm.
0: And I wanted a manager who I could build a career with and plan long-term. So then I ended up at a different agency with a wonderful, great team, and and they did an amazing amount of work um, when I first started out and really Mm -hmm. got me on the way, which was was great. Um, But then ultimately I found that our interests weren't 100% aligned and where I wanted to go. Um, And I tried to address the issues and it didn't quite resolve, and so I had to move on. To yeah. another manager, I think. I think now I'm. That's my current manager right now. Okay. <laughs> my, Jeff Portnoy is a wonderful guy.
1: Yeah. So you finally found the the good fit. mm
0: mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Cool. So so back to the fellowship. Um, did this lead straight to NCS New Orleans? Um, or was there some time in between?
0: Uh no, it did. So it was tr- it was complicated as most things are. Hmm. Um, but I. It was funny. Out of the program, I heard that they were setting some people up with meetings on the show, Mm -hmm. and um, the showrunner at the time, Jeff Lieber, uh, and again, just to give you a little idea of how interconnected all these little things sometimes are, Mm -hmm. when I was doing that very short internship at uh, Valhalla, he he was developing a pilot with them. Oh wow! And I was so excited about the idea. It was such a cool story. And I begged the execs at Valhalla if I could please read it. Uh-huh. And they, they let me read it to their credit. They um, gave me the hard copy and said, you can sit here and read it and then you got to give it back. <sighs> and so I like just ate that script up. I was so in love with it. And then <clears throat> like a couple of months later, a friend of mine who I met through the lesbian production company when I first, mm-hmm. first ever came here, posted something. Oh, my friend Jeff Lieber is now going to run NCS New Orleans. And I was like, wait a minute. He wrote this really cool pilot. And I went on, on her wall and I posted on it. Yeah. And Jeff is like, Jeff is so all over social media. Uh-huh. He then ended up commenting
2: uh-huh. on
0: what I had commented. And then I sent him a personal message and I made incredibly embarrassing typos.
1: <laughs> and then I was like, "We've all done that?
0: that." Yeah, and I was like, "And that's it. Never will see this guy again. Good stuff. <laughs> And yep. then, sure enough, like three years, two years later, he's running the show, and I hear that they are having a spot for a writer coming out of the diversity program, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think I was the first choice because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not that familiar with New Orleans. <laughs> some might say. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was also definitely not a crime procedural writer. Like that no. all seemed very far out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, but you know, when you're starting out, you gotta you gotta find every way possible shape and angle. And then as luck would have it, the manager that I was with at the time also ended up being Jeff's manager.
2: Oh. So
0: between the um program vouching for me
2: mm-hmm.
0: and my manager getting in jeff's ear and everybody pulling i ended up getting an interview with him
2: mm-hmm.
0: and he is the most lovely human being uh, the most accessible guy and, oh, yeah. and a real guy yeah. and um i am almost ashamed to admit it but that was the only showrunner meeting I had, and that was the job I got.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. And that is
0: normal. That is 100% not normal.
1: I totally know that, yeah. I, I know I know of writers who have gone an entire season doing tons of meetings and not getting a single job out of it.
0: Yeah. 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 And also, I, sh- I will say, to, to ease the annoyance factor of that unicorn instance, mm. I... I think I interviewed with him maybe in March, Mm -hmm. and and then and he was like he's like okay like let me let me figure some stuff out but I want to make this work, and then I didn't hear for a month,
2: Hmm.
0: and then I emailed him he's like I'm on it I'm I'm trying to make it work (laughs) and I didn't want to be a dick you know but I ended up I ended up literally sitting on hot coals for I think it was two and a half months until they finally able to find the money for me yeah
1: wow. So, so, so talk was, about that experience. So, so two and a half months later, you're, you're getting on staff. What was your impression of yeah. the room?
0: Um, uh, absolute utter culture shock <laughs> because again, I couldn't, I, I couldn't do the coffee getting and I can, if I have any advice for anybody young, go do the coffee getting because mm. like do the PA and do it so fucking well that they cannot deny you. Mm. <laughs> um, because I never could do that, and so I never knew—I I'd never been in a writer's room. I mm-hmm. didn't know how it runs. I didn't know how people lo- order lunch, and I didn't know. The only thing I knew about sort of the chain of command and how, what a staff writer should do, I learned in the CDS program. Mm-hmm. And so then I came in, and which is—it it was really funny because I am always early. I am mm-hmm. so German. I am always early. And I remember sitting out in the parking lot of this job, and I I was—it was in Santa Clarita, so it was quite a commute. And I was like, I was like probably an hour early. Yeah. And then I was like, I'm not gonna go in and be that weirdo. (laughs) And so I sat in my car Uh and went in probably like 25 minutes early, which I which I felt was acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I walked in and everybody was already there. I was the last one to (laughs) arrive. And I was like. I was like, shit. And then also I I was I think that year there was only two new hires. So it mm-hmm. was me and, and the co EP writing team. So everybody else knew each other. Everybody was like chummy. Everybody had, you know, their their inside jokes. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> I don't know how I fit in. Mm-hmm. And they had um they had a wonderful writer's assistant who everybody loved and she was so on top of her game. And then they had promoted their writer's assistant staff writer and he was like everybody's buddy and incredibly bright guy. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know how I'm ever gonna convince anybody that I can hang. (laughs) And for the first couple of days, I literally like sat in my chair and I was like, "Ah, I don't know if I should sit like that. Like, if I sit too leaned in, am I seeming too confident? If I lean back, like, is that, like I literally, <laughs> I, got, I got so deep into my head. And uh-huh. then also, the conversation moves incredibly fast. Yeah. And especially in a, in a procedural room where, you know, it, I feel like a crime procedur- procedural kind of is like a jigsaw puzzle, mm-hmm. and you get really good at it, like you develop that eye on how to spin the story Mm. um and and the the people who were in this room it was a, it was a rather top heavy room they had done that for the last 10 years of their lives mm. and and they were like like they were so on it and they i couldn't even keep up 80 percent of the time mm. and then i remember i distinctively remember one day it was probably like week two and I was like, I had this really amazing idea that I thought was going to be brilliant.
2: Uh-huh. And it's
0: like so, so much of, of crime procedurals is, oh, and then we find the TBD lead, right? Where you go like, oh, I just need that the little clue, the, and, and we call it like TBD fairy dust, because until the day, like, you don't need to know what it is, because it's just a placeholder. Uh-huh. Um. But I was like, "Oh, and maybe we can find the clue in the cryptocurrency, bitcoins." Right? I mm-hmm. thought I was being super smart. Uh-huh. And just as I was trying to formulate the pitch in my mouth and head,
2: mm-hmm.
0: one of the co-eps like joke. He's like, "Yeah, we do the, the, the stupid Bitcoin thing." And I was like, <gasps> and, "And I was like, good thing I didn't say it." And he didn't like, he didn't say it you know in ill will he just it was like such a thing that they had done fifty-seven thousand times that to Mm. them it was a joke so i guess in that particular instance i learned that you know sometimes not blurting all your ideas out when you're first starting out is maybe not a bad thing because Mm. the people around you know better yeah and so so ultimately what i ended up doing was a lot of legwork and i was like how like you know It's so important in the first year on a show that you figure out how you fit in and how you can add value. Hmm. And so what I did is anytime somebody was like, oh, and then let's find the TBD thing that's going to lead us to the clue. I would go home at night and I would research like seven things that could be the TBD thing. Like, Hmm. oh, you need a bruise on the neck? Cool, it could be from a ring. It could be from this. It could be from that. You know, like finding the clues and doing mm. the research. And then it's like, and then I was like starting to research military technology and be like, go to, you know, some trusted producers or, or co-EPs who who I sort of started to develop a relationship with and be like, hey, I found this super cool article. Do you think this could make a story? Mm. And and so, in, in and they didn't want to do that. They had too much to do. So, in doing the legwork for them, I think I ended up earning some some type of respect. And then um, another thing that I found was I ended up being the person who was on set the most. I ended up. I mean, yeah, I, I don't even remember how much time I spend in New Orleans, but I think I was. I started the job. And I mean, I guess like in the, the, that job goes 48 weeks out of the year. So wow. you're on the whole year. And I think I probably was like four months in New Orleans in <laughs> total, wow. like back, back and forth. Yeah. It, it got to a point where I literally had like a travel suitcase in my car so <laughs> that I could go straight to the airport and straight to New Orleans.
1: Wow. Which,
0: yeah, was wild at the time.
1: Well, that's interesting because on a lot of shows, it's not until you get to the producer level or higher that you even get yeah. to set.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's actually complicated, I think, because obviously the writer's guild has specific rules and as a producer, you receive a producing fee, which mm-hmm. is what you get paid to be there and do it. And you don't do that when you're a staff writer. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time though, like for me, I, I just found it so incredibly helpful to mm. be on set and and i was good because i had done a lot of production stuff so i was good running point and and i guess sometimes i can be a very german crisis manager which mm. is helpful on set yeah. um, and so i learned a lot about what it means to be a tv writer being on mm. set because nothing is more brutal than sitting on set and realizing that your prop master didn't understand what you wanted the prop to look like because it wasn't specific enough in the script, and then you're standing there and you got to figure something out, and you get, you know, you you earn your stripes.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So 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 talk about sort of was there anybody who mentored you through this time, or um, what? How did you sort of the, make the transition to? The participating person in the room and really confident in the room and that kind of thing,
0: right? Um, (laughs) I guess I was probably raised by a tribe of older men. Uh. (laughs) No, I mean I'm joking about it, but there's there's been a lot of like um, there's been a lot of transition on the show. While I was there, I went through four years on the show, and I think in the four years we had three different showrunners, and it was it was just very um, fluent, fluid, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's been showrunners that I learned a great deal from and that, you know, I hold in high regard. And then there's some showrunners that, that I might've learned a couple of things from like, maybe don't do that. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: And, uh, there's been, you know, some peers and, and, and other writers that I'm still until this day in touch with who I love Mm -hmm. dearly And, um, like you know, one of one of my friends there was somebody who gave me notes on my pilot that I just sold. So like you kind of um, create those relationships,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, and then there was a lot of like seasoned TV dudes mm-hmm. on TV that I learned a lot from. And it's really funny. Like there's uh, one one director particularly uh, I will say his name, Michael Zinberg. Um, who is, like, a legend. If you you should look him up, he is, like, he looks like Clint Eastwood, and he is, like, the most brilliant man in this town, and he's been around the block, and he is also not a picnic. And when a, like, little girl shows up in front of him who is, like, literally on her, like, second month on the job, he was not necessarily going to, you know, let me get off lightly Mm-hmm. But working with him sort of I, I learned a lot of the lay of the land you know and he kind of he kind of became a little bit of a mentor so mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of a lot of guys there's, there were a lot of good guys
1: there. Very cool and by the end of NCIS, you were already developing projects um, Talk mm-hmm. about that that time in between when you finished uh, New Orleans and when you started good girls
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it, it was a little crazy because it was sort of a, a flying transition.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what happened is I um, I was a producer in NCS New Orleans and I had written a uh, pilot, an original pilot, and of course, if you're doing four years on maybe the oldest crime procedural there is on the air right now. You need to and, and and I never considered myself a procedural writer. I always considered myself more as a cable writer or mm. streaming writer, whatever that means these days. Um, I knew that I needed to have a an original pilot that is just super different. Mm. And so I ended up writing that while I was still on NCS New Orleans. And then once CBS kindly let me out of my contract at NCIS New Orleans, the The pilot went out wide. Mm-hmm. And it went very wide. Oh, wow. And like, I think I counted it. I did 33 pitches. Wow. Yes. And um, what also happened is um, it actually did go to Valhalla Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And they were the pr- first people who wanted to take it out, which was, again, just shows you how things... You know, or weird, like Jeff Neiman, who's a wonderful executive, mm. uh, at, the, at the time when I was an intern, was like the guy who gave me the scripts and was a big dude. And then wow. he read that pilot and it was like, holy shit, like maybe Greta wasn't 100 percent full of shit. And they uh, raised their hand and then and then it went very fast. And mm. usually there is sort of a process to it. Like you first go to producers and then you go to studios and then from the studios you go to the outlets. Mm-hmm. But now that's all different because Netflix is studio and outlet together, and once you go there, like you gotta go everywhere. So it, it got all kinds of messy, mm-hmm. and in the middle of all of this, the uh, WGA campaign um, against the packaging fees, ATA WGA conflict hit, mm. and and in the middle of all of this, my agent had set me up with a meeting with Jenna Bantz who created and runs Good Girls. Mm -hmm. And she had read the same pilot and so it it literally all came down to one week I was pitching the show everywhere and then I ran to the valley and I met Jenna Mm -hmm. And that was probably I think it was a Wednesday. Yeah, and then on Thursday, I think she said to my agent. We also shared an agent at the time she said she, she wanted to make an offer and then on Friday morning, my agent, Mickey Berman, and I realized that I, that there was still a kink in my NCIS contract. So at nine in the morning, I sat with my agent who got me out of my contract.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And at noon, I basically signed the, NCAA, the, the good girls contract. And at yep. midnight that day, I got to fire my agent as a big thank you because of the ATA campaign. Oh, my. And then also on top of that, it was still while it was in the middle of the pilot being out. Hmm. So now my manager had to jump in and basically call across the entire town and be like, hey, you might have gotten the script from UTA. Just (laughs) wanted to see if you read it. And it it just ended up being an insane mad dash. And and then ironically, again, Jeff Neiman, the guy from Valhalla, ended up working with gail berman at fox and he so i actually went pitching it with him twice and then that was my 32nd pitch mm-hmm. that i got an offer to buy it wow and then on my 33rd pitch i got another offer to buy it and wow. those were the last two pitches yeah Wow. So then then that happened <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: and so you were starting good girls and your pilots getting these offers so so tell me about that
0: um well, it it was it's tricky. I mean, look, this was the first time I've ever done this. I went through this, mm-hmm. so I was completely green. Um, but at the time, I had I brought my lawyers on, and basically, um, what happens is in your contract, you can carve out a project. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And in my case, what they did was basically they said, oh, January first. I think I started the job in June, and mm-hmm. they were like, if by January first HBO Max wants to move forward with this project. Then you can leave Good Girls. Mm. And so it's like a first position kind of deal. Yeah. And I was so nervous about it. I was like, oh, what if it happens sooner? And Jenna, who's a wonderful human being, she, mm. um, she called me personally and was like, look, Greta, if your pilot goes, mm. I will not keep you on the show. Oh. Like, I oh. want you to go. Like, that's the no brainer
1: that's and awesome
0: so, yeah so then i was like super relieved just hearing mm. it personally from sometimes i think we forget how important personal interaction is mm. with yeah. lawyers and agents and all that stuff and and then in retrospect now that i'm a little bit smarter i'm like nothing would have moved that fast mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> like i'm still i'm still developing on it now yeah. so it was uh it was a whole lot of hoopla for nothing i guess
1: yeah Cool, we're gonna take a quick sponsor break and then we're gonna come back to talk about Good Girls and your current projects. Awesome. Drivingfootage.com provides 4K nine angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height adjustable rig is available for custom shoots and second unit photography. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. avgearguide.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the L.A. area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital, so you can easily share with your friends and family. Mention the name of the TV Writer podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit avgearguide.com for details. Full disclosure: I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. And we're back. Um, so, talk about good girls. This this is now your second experience on staff um, with Jenna. What what was that experience like for you? Obviously, was... a lot more confident.
0: <laughs> well, I, I I would not say that. I don't think uh, I don't think that kind of confidence tra- travels. But um, uh-huh. it was really interesting. It was funny because NCIS New Orleans was such a well-oiled machine Mm -hmm. and it was and and also the nature of a procedural is just very like there was very clear direction and it was Mm -hmm. very like focused and you knew what you were going to do and it would like you want to call that sort of the military drill academy I walked into good girls and it was like Montessori school <laughs> and and like it started with the fact that it's funny like I'm like I'm like a stickler that way but they did not have a table and I'm oh, like really okay how, how 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 do I work in a writer's room if there's no table There's just a bunch of couches oh like, wow I was like I this is weird but in, in retrospect like every show has its own tone right and yeah. and Jenna who she's such a she's such a distinct voice and also yeah. by the way, very different just working for a female creator. Hmm. And and just also by nature, the show is so different. It is not, like there is, they literally, at the show, I feel, reinvent the the engine every episode. Mm. Oh, wow. Which, which is what makes it amazing, um, but it also makes it for a very different process, you know? And it's not like, it's not like pitching into, oh, and then we find the bruise on the neck.
2: Hmm. It's
0: much more loose, and it's much more like, oh, here, this is a funny joke. We love this funny joke. Can we build a scene around it? Hmm. And that was a world that was completely new to me. i'd never I'd never done that. I was almost like, I'm like, I, am i am I just so German that I can't have fun? I'm so <laughs> confused. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, so that was a very, very different um, experience in general. Hmm. Um, and um, but also very rewarding and uh and shooting in la is very different than Mm. shooting shooting in new orleans um so those were super interesting experiences and also just sort of juxtaposing it and also mind you i think at ncis new orleans i ended up at some point i ended up being the only woman
2: Mm. who
0: who lasted that long on the staff it was a very masculine world to Mm. say that which you know I love men. There's nothing wrong with men, <laughs> um, but you know, it was a very masculine-driven show. And then I came into the Good Girls Room, which obviously show about three women, mm. and it was it was all of a sudden I was I had never been around that many women. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is going on here?
2: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, which was wonderful, and um, and I got to also, ironically, bring it back to the um, programs. I actually came up with the girl in in or a woman, I should say, in the CBS programs, and we were friends. And then we ultimately found out that we were both on the show, like the oh, staff nice. of the show. So so then I ended up walking in with with the buddy, and and like our relationship got much closer through mm-hmm. the course of the show. So it's really interesting.
1: Very cool, very cool. So you left that show um, because of COVID, and you were a supervising producer at that time. Um, talk about since so you've got not just the HBO Max but something else in development and mm-hmm. what's the last few months been like for you
0: yeah it was actually like it, things went again a little nutty I think that's sort of the spring time mm-hmm. for me I don't know what it was but um, while I was like a year ago while I was doing all the crazy pitches between NCIS and Good Girls I was on this uh, pitch uh in a I, I, where some executive suddenly says wait you're from germany and you love cars and motorcycles there's this producer running around town who's looking for a writer to write about this amazing woman who won the most dangerous rally race in the world which is the the car rally and there and she grew up in bavaria and i'm oh, like wow. i'm like you are i, I knew who it was because <laughs> i watched her win and i was a i'm a huge fan of her wow. and i was like i was like yeah that is weird i should I should talk to this producer.
1: Hmm. And
0: so that day I met, I left the meeting and I, I called my then agents and I was like, what is, who is this guy? And why uh, am I not considered, you know, I yeah. the, the asshole thing. And, um, I, I ultimately, I found out the reason why I was not considered was because I was just too young. Like hmm. it, it was, a, it was a big, big boy project. Um, but, I kind of was relentless about it. I was like, look, I don't. you can put any big writers in front of him. I still want to meet with this guy. Hmm. And if he wants to have coffee with me, I'll tell him what I know because I know this woman. She grew up 20 minutes down the street from me. And if anybody knows what it's like to, to grow up in Bavaria and, and hmm. leave to go on a great adventure, I might know. Yeah. And so I met this guy, David Kaufman. And, and I, said, I told him the story, and I was like, I, I, look, I know you have your pick, um, but I, I love the story, and it, it's a movie. And I was like, I'm, I'm a huge fan, and you got to do what's right for the project. Um, but I gave him, <laughs> which is something I never do. Uh-huh. But I, like, I printed out a map, and I marked, like on Google Map, I marked where I grew up. And I marked where the woman at the heart of this movie grew up. And I and I marked the the roads that we would drive at night. Because I would always drive to clear my head. I do it until this day. And it was the same, like it was like I literally basically drove by her house many times. And so I left him with that. And then he took a giant risk at the time and was like, Okay, I'm I'm gonna give it a go with you. Wow. And so then the week before I started Good Girls. We took a pitch to a bunch of movie producers and ended up sitting in front of Kelly McCormick and Annie Martyr at um, 87 North, which is David Leach's production company.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, they were like, again, super cool experience talking to two badass women producers mm-hmm. about a badass woman race car driver, essentially. Yeah. They were like super excited about it. And I was like, this is awesome. And they came on board, and I started my TV job, and I was like, "What the fuck am I gonna do now?"
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is so confusing. Yeah. And then, and then um, we ended up pitching that movie, and Jenna at Good Girls very kindly basically let me um, let me do it, which was mm. amazing. Yeah. We, ended up, we ended up pitching the movie and ended up setting it up, um, and uh, at Amblin Entertainment. Wow. And yeah, and um, then I, it got really close to them uh, commencing me, which basically means you got your contract and they say, go write.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the moment they say, go write, the, the clock starts ticking.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And, and in your contract, it says you have X amount of weeks to write this thing. Wow. And uh, it's a very intense sprint. Mm-hmm. And it just literally started like COVID hit the show, the sh- and and I was still doing rewrites on my HBO show, so I was able to do Good Girls and the rewrites on the HBO show. I was able to figure it out. It was tough. It was really tough because it's mm-hmm. weekend nights, and it was, and it's also different brain spaces. Yeah. And then on Wednesday, I think it was a Wednesday, Universal shut us all down for COVID. Mm-hmm. I went home the next morning. I was on my HBO show writing. And then on Friday after, they commenced me on the movie. And I was oh, like, wow. and and so I have literally been writing this entire COVID time. It's, wow. I, I have, like, honestly, the, my wife and I were, like, both stuck in the house now. And it's like there's some days where I'm, like, from 5 in the morning until 9 p.m. I was just sitting at my computer writing. Wow. So no. if the
1: virus hadn't have happened, you probably wouldn't have noticed.
0: Probably <laughs> not, yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, good for you. I mean, that's a good problem to have.
0: It's, you know, I'm nothing but grateful to be working yeah. right now. And I think it just, even if you go into your final draft file mm-hmm. and you save, I always date my drafts so that yeah. I can trace them and just putting in the date in your draft file is a wonderful way of keeping track of time.
1: yeah very very cool so so tell me about what are your future plans i mean you have hbo max development you've got movie development where do you see yourself in five years ten years
0: ah that's a good question um you know look i i i do want to create shows um Mm -hmm. that's that's what i want to do i want to tell stories um I want to keep developing. I want to find exciting new stories. And, and luckily, like now I'm slowly also in the position where I can work with other writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always been big for me, too, is like to give back to younger writers because, yeah. you know, it's the kindness of, of uh, all of us that helps us. So, so there's a lot of that. I mean, in, in five years, 10 years, in an ideal world, I'll be writing the stories that I want to write, that I love, mm-hmm. that I'm excited about. And, and if I should be so lucky to do that, I also want to help others do the same, you know? So mm. that's sort of what I'm hoping for.
1: Very, um, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what would you say your least favorite part about TV writing is?
0: <laughs> um, this is complicated. Um, I tend to be very antsy about ideas. And I tend to um, poo-poo any ideas that I have very early on. So Mm. the way my mind works is like, oh, this could be a show. And then I'm like, no, it couldn't be a show because of this. And it couldn't be a show because of that. And it's way too close to this. And it's dumb anyways. (laughs) And (laughs) and so I'm uh, certainly a harsh critic of my own work. Mm. And so so that is definitely, um, that's a tough one because Mm. it's sort of, you're you're your own worst enemy. I guess ultimately, if I had to boil it down, the worst part about TV writing is being your own worst enemy. Hmm. Like the pressure you put on yourself to get it right, the pressure you're vetting your ideas with, um, it can get it can get a little overbearing sometimes for sure. Hmm.
1: And uh, so what do you do about that?
0: <laughs> um, I have a really good therapist Uh and good friends. (laughs) But no, I think the the important thing is to acknowledge it and to Mm. recognize it and to know that you're just looking for the flaw right now. And if you keep pushing it, and if you keep developing the idea, it ultimately will maybe flourish to become something that will work. Mm. And I, ironically, like the pilot that I sold, the spec pilot that I sold, I was like, like, I remember talking to my friend. I was like, why would I write this? This is like stupid. It's dumb. Like everybody's seen it. Like this is not mm. a good idea. And and I ended up developing it and finding a different angle that made it different, special. Mm. And so it's you got to push through through it and really – I think we as writers sometimes think that writing is such a lonely thing, where you're just alone with, you know, your scotch and your a desktop and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be, uh, or I think it is healthy to consider it more as a as a communal thing, and mm-hmm. to really surround yourself with other writers and share mm-hmm. your challenges. And I have like one of my really good writers friends. Uh, we basically went on parallel tracks um, selling movies and going through the drafts and the time pressure and the madness and all that. And, and we talk on the phone and we're just, you know, supporting each other. I think that's very mm-hmm. really important. We forget yeah. about that sometimes.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that's something too uh, have you ever seen John Cleese had this great seminar on creativity? You can find it on YouTube. Um, wh- one of the things he talks about is the intermediate impossibles that are really important to the creative process. And that is that often you can't get to the great idea without going through the bad idea. Yes, um, And you have to be willing to do the bad thing first, and, mm-hmm. but move through it to the good thing.
0: That's awesome. i gotta, I got to write that down and watch it.
1: Mm-hmm. Because yeah, it's so really, true, really great. too. Yeah.
0: And I'm also like, I am not a writer. I'm a rewriter. Mm. Like, you know, oftentimes you'll sit there and you'll be like, oh, it's got to be perfect. Yeah. And, you know, and then you end up writing three sentences all day mm. versus if you if you just allow yourself to write the shitty version, you might write 10 pages, but you'll revise them and you'll revise them and revise them. And that's that's when you get to the good stuff.
1: Mm. Very cool. And what is your favorite part about writing for TV slash movies?
0: Ah, uh, the, the, you know what, I think my favorite part is like personally, internally, my favorite part is um, understanding human beings and the human condition and really sort of dismantling psyche of, of somebody like really getting into why they're doing what they're doing and and like get very analytical with it. That's something that excites me um, on an external level. Uh, I always thought that um, seeing something you wrote being filmed would be the most rewarding thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then when it happened, I stood there and I realized it wasn't actually seeing it being filmed. It was seeing three hundred people have jobs. They take they take so much pride in and be so detail oriented like even the prop guy like like has the smallest little details and it's all mm. because of something you wrote so that's i think again uh, it goes back to sort of the communal aspect you know hmm.
1: very very cool we're going to transition a little bit here um to talk about sort of advice to greener writers um you've you've been in this long enough that you you see people now coming in what what mistakes do you see people making that would be easy to fix
0: Bad PAs, like Mm -hmm. that's like the first thing. Um, If you, first of all, if you want to break in, you should be a PA. That's the bottom line. It is not beneath you, and if you think it is beneath you, then you're in the wrong industry.
2: Um,
0: That's number one. Uh, And then being a bad PA, that is uh, like to me not excusable. I actually, it's. I'll I'll tell a quick story um, about this uh, kid who. He's a young man, but I met him in New Orleans. I, I was in New Orleans on set. I had like some really bad, I, I had the flu. It was, I was really in really, really rough shape. Mm-hmm. I was not healthy, and I probably had a fever, and I was sitting on set, and somebody goes like, oh, uh, this little guy, Cameron, he wants to sit down with you. He wants to be a writer. Do you have time to talk to him? And I'm like, <laughs> I sat down with him, uh-huh. and I was, I was miserable. But he came so well prepared and he knew exactly what he wanted to ask me. And I gave him a little bit of advice. And I said to him, I was like, because I was really impressed with him. And he was like 22 at the time. Like he was really on top of his game. And I was like, look, if you want to be a writer, you've got to be in L.A. Hmm. And if you make it to L.A., you can call me. And I'd be glad to give you advice. More advice then. Mm-hmm. Two, months, two months later, I get an email. He's like, I'm coming to LA. Oh, and I, wow. was like, I was like, look at you. And sure enough, I, that day, I invited him to come to the writer's room and um, observe. Mm-hmm. And then that day, he was observing in the writer's room and the lunch was brought in. And he was a guest yeah, but when the lunch came in, he made it his business to get up and get everybody's plate and put a napkin and put the utensils and put everything right and bring it to the person and place it in front of the person with the name. and And all of a sudden he was like doing this meticulous, brilliant job. Wow. And I was just like, I looked at the at the showrunner at the time and I, I said to him that later that day, I said, you know, you know he's going to see if you can help him get a job or something. And I, I forgot exactly <laughs> what he said. He said, he's like, I'm too busy to talk to him now, but if he keeps doing a job like that, he can work here. Wow. And the next season, he was the PA, and he did, I think, two years of that being on point,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then he became the script coordinator, and now he's yeah. a staff writer.
1: Wow. Wow. And And he was never told to do that.
0: No, he just, like, that's, like, he, I guess if you, if you try to boil it down, if you, if you can't be a good PA, why would a showrunner think that you can be a good team player and writer? Hmm. Like, you know, because you, you're trying to help a showrunner accomplish something. You're trying to be a support system. And if you feel like something is beneath you, then that's not, really helpful right. and then the same thing too is like for green young writers it's like if you're a staff writer um don't talk too much don't think you know it all like observe like don't talk too much but also don't talk not enough that's very <laughs> important balance yeah. and and find your way of contributing and find mm. your way of being able to take so- a load off the showrunner's back mm. um and, and I mean, I guess until this day, I, I think that's what, what I try to do when I'm on a job. Yeah. Um, I, I try to find the one thing where I can help the show on out or, you know, take a load off and I uh, try to do that. Um, and then the other thing that green writers do is um, send out material that isn't properly vetted. Well, Yeah so there's that. <laughs> yeah. um, and fight notes, that's even worse. Mm. like if if I take the time to read your work and you're fighting notes, you're not gonna make it far. Yeah. Like that's not how it's gonna go. and And I always try to explain to people is like if somebody's giving you a note, that's like a style note, you can disagree. and that's mm. your prerogative as the creator. But if somebody is giving you a note and you find yourself trying to explain it,
2: mm-hmm. then
0: that, that it's not on the page and right. you need to find a way to explain it on the page.
1: Yeah. So, Very good point.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and also, I mean, all the way up to the showrunner level, everybody has to do notes. Like everybody. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the showrunner has to do notes from the network. Everybody has to, it's part of the writing process. Yes, and I
0: also think, I always try to think of executives and producers as our friends. Like Mm. a lot of writers get into this really odd mentality of they don't know what to do, I'm smarter. And you know, I mean, sometimes you'll get really rotten notes. Sometimes Mm. you'll get notes where you're like, what the fuck is that even? But even those notes, if you take them seriously and you try to figure out where they're coming from mm-hmm. they still elevate the material you know and so i really i really always think again it's a team sport ultimately yeah and if, if you don't want notes if you don't want to adjust to the greater corporation umbrella that really dominates television then maybe write novels And I I, and I say it like I say it like I'm an asshole. I struggle with it myself, but Mm -hmm. it's just something to keep in mind.
1: (laughs) Yeah, very cool. Um, What do you wish? What do you know now that you wish you had known when you started out?
0: Um, hmm, that's a really good question. Um. You know, uh, that, that's, that's it. I think for me, I think sometimes you give it your all and it's still not going to be good enough. Mm. And if, that's not in your control. Like, I think knowing that you, the only thing in this industry that you can control is the work you're doing.
2: Mm.
0: So it's it's the work ethic, the discipline. The, uh, cr- the homing of your craft, committing yeah. to, to homing your craft, um, that's all stuff that you can control. Yeah. What you cannot control is if you send the script out to market and literally a day before the executives read, a concept that is very similar to it is being sold by somebody who's bigger than you mm. your project is kaput. And you can't control that. Yeah. You cannot, and that's just what you got to accept. And and that's just something that you have to to roll with. And I think sometimes, like you'll sometimes you won't get the job or you will get the job. And some like so much of it, you'll never know. Hmm. You know, like I mean, a good example is like the. Kid who's beating himself up because he didn't get a staff writer job and and it's sadly a true story uh he he didn't get the staff writer job and ended up blaming the diversity programs being like well they're only hiring diverse people right now and i was like "Ooh, that's not that's not right oh, my wow. friend and what ended up happening is that the very um uninspired showrunner actually just hired his nephew um,
2: oh, you oh, wow. know
0: so and by the way i should i should say that like mm-hmm. Don't do that. That's yeah. that's that's another horrible no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you do that as a young writer, yeah. blaming others, yeah. getting jobs.
1: Yeah, no. definitely, and and just facing the reality that, that is, projects just don't always go. I mean, mm-hmm. you could have the greatest project, and it, it it can make its rounds. It can have a lot of interest, and it can die yeah. a horrible death. And it just ha- it happens to the best of writers. I, I was actually just reading a, a quote from Josh Schwartz uh, the other day. He he did The O.C., Chuck, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stuff. And he was saying he was so glad that his first couple of pilots didn't get picked up. Because by the time he wrote The O.C., he mm-hmm. had learned so many things about how to make that show successful. Yeah. He, the first couple, he's, he would have just, um they would have fallen flat. Because they they weren't good enough.
0: Yeah, and I also think it's important to look at it as a whole. And the reason why the OC became a huge success and was picked up was because he had sold the pilots before that. Mm -hmm. You know, if if he would have come out of nowhere with just that pilot, maybe he would have never set it up. So Mm. every project serves its purpose. And even like the most horrible feature film that I made, that I'm incredibly embarrassed about. Mm. Got me a great friendship with an actor-producer who I then ended up making a pilot with who I then got a rep through. So every project, even if you feel like it's a big failure, if you're giving it your all, it always mm. leads. It, 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 it's the smaller steps. Yeah. Just, there is no overnight success.
1: Yeah. All hard work brings a profit. Good proverb. Some might say. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we'll end it here, but I uh, really appreciate you taking your time and I'm so happy for you that your career is going so well. Um, even even with the virus here, you're, you're very, very busy and uh, I wish you the best of luck in these projects that you have in the fire.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad we got to hang out and uh, I'm, I'm in disbelief that I went from listening to your podcast to being on one. Very cool. That, that is quite cool.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Greta.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much.
1: And that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Make sure you do watch for us every Tuesday on all the different places you can find the podcast. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Bye-bye.